So thank you, listeners. I just want to share a review that we got from C. Graham. If you stumble across this podcast, fight through episode one. It has good info and introduces you to the host, but it's sort of all over the place. Yes, Graham, it was all over the place. True. They begin their stride in episode two. Every episode, even episode one, in parentheses, has moments of legit sex education and thought-provoking ideas for people from conservative religious background to consider. So thank you very much, C. Graham. We appreciate that. We appreciate your reviews because your reviews help us rise in the algorithms you're still doing it. We appreciate your reviews because they help other people discover the show. Okay, we appreciate your reviews because it helps other people to discover our show. Thank you. I think cows are beautiful. I used to bottle feed this like baby cow at my friend's farm named Peaches. And she like would run up to me and I had this bottle the size of like a baby <laughs> with the hugest nipple on mm-hmm. it. And like, and I would go peaches and she'd run towards me and I would Aww. like hold her head and she would just like mah, 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 on that big old nipple. And like, <laughs> it was so sweet. And then she like actually got out and got hit by a truck. It was terrible, <gasps> but oh, I've never, that was that a, is a dark, terrible ending. Wonderful that part story. Off. Like, sorry, that's just what happened. From Milieu Media Group, this is Fun Parts. An exploration of sexuality and spirituality for anyone who's curious or convinced there must be more. With your hosts, Becky Patton, Latifa Alatas, Ashley Lusink, Luke Bronner, and me, Steve Weens. So we ended the last episode before the very uncomfortable moan from one side of the table. Becky, you were talking about the idea that... I don't think they were uncomfortable moaning. No, no. I was uncomfortable with their moaning. Okay. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I felt with, very natural. With how me. very comfortable they were. Um, <laughs> you made a comment about how marriage is not some sort of magic pill that makes sex good. I'd love for you to expand on that a little bit. I think in the Christian realm, one of the things that we've done, and this is one of the things that the purity movement did, is it created this stigma around anything that happened physically outside of marriage was not good. It wasn't pleasurable. It wasn't the way God meant it. And my contention with that is if we weren't meant to be sexual beings until we got married, there would have been something evolutionarily put into us that that wouldn't get turned on until then. Otherwise, then I just have this sick view of a God that's going, okay, let's, I'm going to put this in you just to see you fail. And I think we were created as sensual and sexual beings in order to be able to notice and wonder the world and see the world through a different aspect. And I want to say literally to experience the world in a very physical way. So my curiosity with it is when we make sex is only good for if you're married, what we're doing is we're shutting down the possibility of how people explore, discover themselves as sexual beings. And I've watched this happen a lot. Then when they get in marriage, it's their partner's responsibility to make sure that they are experiencing everything. And that's it. We're setting people up for failure. 
because there is no way humanly possible that my partner can know my body better than I do. It's interesting to me in the context of the conversation we just had on the last episode about the idea of a God who would create a structure in which their own son would need to be sacrificed in order to save others and how uncomfortable we are with that theology it does line up really well with a god who would create that particular boundary around sex to say like i'm going to make you capable of this thing that you will deeply desire to do but i will only allow it to happen if you follow these particular rules and until then if you engage in any way or if you indulge in any way then they're doomed you are deserving of wrath the idea of a wrathful god spiteful God, an angry God, you know? Yeah. But I mean, okay. Following that train of thought then like if God created divine created these bodies to have these experiences. And I want to especially say just like an orgasm, if you created something that's so magnificent as an orgasm, wouldn't you get excited when your child, your creation actually discovered it and was like, Oh, they found that part I made. (laughs) I mean, I just think that there would be an excitement. I mean, I get excited with my kids when I've, I've wrapped a present for them and it's something I, they just, they didn't know they really wanted and they open it up and they're like, oh, you know, and I get excited when they get excited. So uh, there's this element of, is I think our, and this is why I said it back in season one, so much of what hinders us, I believe, as sexual beings is our relationship to our spirituality and our relationship to our view of how we view God. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think is really important is a lot of that is based on how we view Genesis, that like God kicked us out of the garden. And, you know, we were having this conversation earlier. What if the garden was never meant to be someplace that we stayed? It was just a place of beginning. And we needed to go out and experience these other things. And I think we've got this misconception that the garden is the only place where goodness happens. And we screwed that up so we can't get back there. And I think the garden is like right today, I think we are sitting in a garden. We're discovering new things. We're tilling the soil. We're talking. We're disagreeing. We're creating something. And the temptation is this is the only place that can happen. And it's not. We know it's not. And that's where I go back to the garden was a place of beginning. I don't believe it was ever meant to be the place that we just stayed. It's a part of our story. It's not the whole. I don't think the woman destroyed anything. I think what she did is she was curious and her curiosity led her to actively engage in something that stretched and expanded. And somewhere we've read that through the angle of it being something that we destroyed God's perfect plan. And I just don't believe in a God. I don't believe in a God that sees me as destroying his goodness. I believe in a God divine or something that allows me to have curiosity and explore. And I include my body in that because if my body was created in the image of a creator, I'm meant to experience new creation, especially in the area of sexuality. And I, you guys, I'm 60. That was a big milestone this last year. I turned 60 and sex keeps changing. I have to keep re getting acquainted with this body. 
And therefore I get to keep being curious and reacquainted in my sexual self as well. And I just think that's more about adventure and ongoing. And I can see there's deer in headlights. I'm sorry. I've kind of gone long too long. And no, 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 no. I actually, I have a couple of thoughts. One, I'd love to circle back to what does sex look like, you know, post-menopause. Like as a woman, I think that's a great topic to come back to because one of the fears and anxieties I had, I'm not in menopause yet. I turned 40 in December, but one of the fears I had was that I was running out of time after my divorce to have like good sexual experience. And I had a conversation with you and um, some other older women that said, well, I'm, I'm having the best sex of my life now. And like, yeah, yeah. And like, that was really encouraging to me to hear that because, you know, like I referenced earlier when I was, you know, post-divorce and trying to figure out, and I felt like an infant, you know, I remember talking to Lucas maybe six or eight months ago. And I wanted to like, really, for some reason, I just wanted to lay out in like detail everything I did post my divorce. So he would just know. And like, he never asked for it. I just was like, it's part of my story. And some of these things I wouldn't do again. Some things I would if I wasn't with Lucas, but like, but I was like, I just, I want to show you all of it, including the things that I feel a little embarrassed about, you know? And I kind of laid everything out and he sat there and was engaged and really listened. And he said, wow, like, you know, if you were telling me this story and you did all those things when you were 16, I would just say like, oh yeah, that's like how you learn. Like you're figuring out your boundaries, you're figuring out your borders. And he was like, babe, like you didn't do any of this stuff until you were 36. So he was like, you're figuring out your boundaries and that's okay. And he met me with like so much compassion and so much understanding that it like continued to like build deeper trust with him. But I'm just thinking like, there's so much like in front of us when we're trying to understand sex, if you've grown up in purity culture and you don't, you were like slapped on the hand and say, don't look at that. Don't touch that. Like that's dirty. That's bad until it's in this box of marriage or like how God designed it. And for those of us that have had to explore outside of that box, I think it's like catapulted us to explore what we think about spirituality, like you're saying, because they're directly attached. So like my deconstruction of faith is absolutely tethered to me understanding my own sexuality and and body post-divorce because now it's sort of catapulted into this new universe. So like, how do we walk with people that like are feeling trapped or feeling like they're still stuck in the no, 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 but their body's saying yes. Like, how do you get Like, I felt like I was pushed, you know, and now I'm grateful for that, but it was really terrible when it was happening. (laughs) You feel like you were pushed. What do you mean? Like divorce. Like, oh, like divorce. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I thought, I just wanted to make sure because we were about mutual consent. Yeah. No, 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 no. Like I look back at it now and I'm like, you know, that event it now is like literally the best thing that could have happened for me. You know, I don't want to relive it, but I don't know if there would be another way for me to get to where I am today which is more embodied, more peaceful, more loving, less judgmental of myself and those around me. And I really like that. So like, what do you do with people that are like still in their system and they're listening to this show and their body's saying like, I want something different, but like, how do I even get the spirituality? So I'm having a hard time forming the idea, but it's connected to what you're saying. Like spirituality is so intrinsically connected to sexuality. Like how we believe who God is, is so connected to how we believe what we have permission to do or not do. So like, how do we help someone who's listening to the show and desperate for a change 
but feels like their idea of God can't change. It's a chicken and egg, maybe a little bit like. I just remember for me when I gave up the idea that hell was a place that I would end up after because of all the, like as a consequence to all these things, it was so freeing that like, if I were to engage in an action that my 16 year old self would have been like, Oh my gosh, you know, I'm going straight to hell. Like just think about that leap, like your young self, 14, 16 years old. If I engage in this encounter, I will experience eternal damnation. Like that's a, like just terrifying. Yeah. And just trying to like climb out of that is just so, I think that's a part of just the like religious trauma. That's part of purity culture that you've grown up in is like, I just so appreciate you bringing this up Latifa too, because it's so hard to like pull those things apart. And I just appreciate you saying too, like, I think there's a part of normal development along the way in those teen years where if you didn't have that like fear of this literal place that you're going to burn for all eternity, you might be like, oh, I'm just going to explore this thing. And like that felt good or that wasn't good or this like it's that testing ground that you should be able to have instead of like later in life when you're trying to do that. And I think about like replaying back some of the encounters I had post my divorce and it's like, oh, my, they, were, they were still so innocent that's what I'm saying. Cause you were, were so innocent. You were that yeah. new yeah. kid trying to figure yeah. out your borders. But I felt so much shame afterwards. Plus I still had friends who were like part of that purity culture that were like, what kind of witness are you going to be? And I was like, I don't think we talk like that anymore, but it's a tripping experience. I feel like as you're going through it, it's like, it's not, I don't know. I'm just, I'm getting my head back into that space of how it's so cloudy. Like, I think that's why, like even asking your question, it's like, gosh, cause it's so enmeshed. Yes. Like, I don't know how to even see myself as a free person and okay to do this and then like disengage from this person and it's fine. Like, because if we had that experience, it doesn't mean I have to marry you. You know, I can choose to walk away from this and it's fine. You know, or it's like, that's the way the world operates is like, this is just a normal. But when you come with that purity culture, there's so much weight to every encounter you're having, no matter how simple it is. Well, and part of my experience growing up when sex was discussed, which was rarely in the church or like even amongst my Christian friends, we were all like trying to live quote unquote, right. Was that sex was really something to serve your husband. If you were a woman, they really avoided female pleasure. They avoided our experience. It was like always in service to your husband. Who's like done everything he can to keep it in his pants, even, the, and that's why we have to dress how we have to dress and why, cause we have to help this guy who's got like a sex monster inside of him. And like, I mean, they kind of like build it up like this thing and we have to help our spiritual brothers, you know, be, and we've talked about that with like our dressing episodes. We sort of talk about that. And that is not like that message is still being told. It's still prevalent. And so like, to even like think about the untangling, like I deeply believe those things and it did not help my first marriage. I mean, I think I deeply believe those things as a kid. I mean, I think little boys are raised with the same thing that like there's a sex monster inside of you trying to get out. And depending on how you engage with that temptation or whatever, you will become that monster. And it's funny how much that sort of pervades even like Western pop culture, because it's like, we've just taken for granted that men are sex monsters and women are either victims of that or 
They just serve at the pleasure yeah, like, of the president yeah, or whatever. Subservient yeah. to it. Yeah. Or, you know, there's they have a, a few limited roles that they have in relationship to men's sexuality. That is all just to say, like, I was raised with the same fear. This thing is inside of me and it will overtake me if I'm not careful or if I'm not good. Not even just if I'm not careful, if I'm not good. If I don't, like, stand the test of purity or whatever, then, like... I am that thing. That's terrifying. Yeah, of that course would be, it is. And it's for somebody, like, I know you, and I know you really want to be good. Yeah. I bet that would feel really hard. I mean, no wonder this topic is so triggering, because you want to be good, and your whole life you're growing up thinking, I'm a monster inside? Yeah. That's really scary. Yeah. And the the other part of that is that, like, I also carry, the same as you, as, as I've heard you talk about. And Ashley, I've heard you talk about, you had a, a story, I think it was in season one, about the guy on your college campus thanking you for wearing baggy sweatshirts or whatever. The same as like... So he wouldn't stumble? Yeah. As you were taught that you have some responsibility for men's sexual expression, we were taught the same thing. That like, we were basically charged with protecting your purity in the same way. You know, if you do certain things with a woman, you've ruined her. And that's your fault. You've done that, you know. It is pervasive. It's awful. It makes me think about going back to that college experience. There's this house of girls that lived off campus, and they were like the really, really pretty girls. One of the women was dating um, a young man from out of town, and he would never stay at the house. They would never be in the house alone together. If he was there, they would go for walks outside. And then they had their first kiss the day of their wedding. And there was a whole entourage of us girls that were there like, oh, my, I mean, just like, oh, my gosh. You know, just like... This is the example of what this is supposed to look like. And I just think about, I hadn't thought about it until right now as we're talking about this, like, where does that create safety in your relationship? Hmm. If you as the man in this relationship is so afraid of what's inside of you and you're trying to protect her, you know, like there's just no, how do you build trust out of that? Like just these very important tenants in a relationship that there's no space for that because you're so afraid of what's in you taking over. Even let's say you really believed that that was the way to go. Don't even kiss until your wedding day. If you really cared about people's human development, spiritual development, you would then also train people to have a progression of physical activity that leads to PVI or whatever, but it's not the first night because you know, in that, in that I guarantee you that couple had PVI that night. Tri- and they had their first kiss. And they or had their first, they had their kiss, first kiss, kiss the or same tried. day. And PVI. Yes. Or, or try to. Right. Yeah. Right. And I probably... Do you want to say what PVI is just for those that are... <laughs> oh, yeah. Penis vaginal. I always say PIV, penis and vagina. Oh, that Good thing we're too. talking is that not? This. Is that a thing? It's, it's a texting term, PVI. It's penis vaginal intersection. Wow. Or interaction. You can do that. those intercourse. Anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Keep going. But keep going. Yeah. yeah. My point is... If that system cared for people as much as it claimed to, then that secondary thing that I just talked about would also be true. And it wasn't. Once you cross that finish line, it was game on. And there was a ton of pain that happened. Physical physical and emotional that happens because of that. Well, I'm thinking about the whole monster metaphor and how... Because now you're no longer a monster. Once you're married... That monster gets released. Well, I'm just thinking about that experience as a kid and how, you know, Latif and I 
are sort of articulating different experiences of it. But how much more complicated that becomes for the queer community when like, not only is there a monster inside of everyone, but the monster that's inside of you is different and mm. more perverse whatever. or yes. something. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, that's like hetero privilege of like, at least the painful or the traumatic experience that I had was simple. The thing that like, makes me so sad is that what we're talking about is using the tool of self-loathing to like keep people in line. Yes. And when we talk about sexuality and spirituality being massively intertwined, so then what that sort of communicates to my body and like subconsciously to me is that God uses self-loathing to keep me obedient. And I don't think that's true now. Um, But that is a lot of uncovering and a lot of digging and a lot of painful years in my life and how I related to myself and other people and in my first marriage that it did not serve me and it did not serve the people around me. And I don't think it's actually in service of love, of connecting, Mm -hmm. you know? And so like, that feels sadistic, <laughs> like honestly, on some level. Yeah. So it's like, this is really fascinating to me because like, when I thought about what we were going to talk about in season three, I mean, I really had no idea. And I've been going through such a massive year of trying to sort through, like, does it even matter what I believe? Do I need to define it? Like, you know, and, and what I'm realizing is like, as I untangled my understanding of sexuality and connection and getting into another marriage, like all these things were kind of coming up and happening. It's probably why I'm having all these thoughts about my spirituality too. It didn't occur to me that the disruption of my sexual narrative and like sexual freedom or lack thereof, however you want to say it is so tied to spirituality. I mean, like, no wonder I'm walking around being like, what is anything? Hmm. I mean, I'm really having kind of like a moment because I'm just like, Oh, and that's also probably why I like really, I'm going to cry. I really like thinking about these things and like they care so deeply, but like the belonging thing is like so tender because it's like you say one thing out loud to the wrong person and like you are casted out. And that's happened to me with like people I love. Like I'm not just talking about, about random Christians. Like it's like, all of a sudden I'm dangerous, but all I'm doing is like trying to understand and like experience like has been the front wheel of the tricycle is like father Richard Ward talks about like theology, the tenets of scripture and experience leading the wheel of spirituality. It's like experience is leading the wheel of my sexual experience as well. No wonder I stopped going to church and like, I didn't like to pray anymore. I was in a marriage that was really painful. That just makes so much sense. And like now I'm like with somebody like I trust so much and has so much space for me and I have so much safety with and we have great sex and like I and there's so much vulnerability and trust there. And so, of course, I can like feel my heart expanding and saying, well, like maybe maybe it is okay to like explore God, but like that feels tenuous because of the trauma, you know? Yeah. And I think one of the things that's so important to recognize is when we've experienced trauma, what we're seeking is comfort. Anytime we experience trauma, what the body really needs is to be comforted. Think about when children are in uncomfortable situations, the first thing they grab is in their genital region. Mm -hmm. 
because they feel uncomfortable and by touching, they feel both pleasure and pain. I mean, they're, they're experiencing an emotion, some emotional pain, but they're feeling pleasure and it brings them comfort. And so at the core, what if a creator divine chose to instill in every human being this capacity to experience comfort in their body through being with another person. And that's not something that we define by marriage between heterosexual. It's being with another human being that can see my need for comfort and, and that, offer that. It doesn't mean that that's actual physical sex. It no, it doesn't like, necessarily and yeah, mean that. I just that. want to point out like it's essential, like the mm-hmm. touch, the presence, the holding. It's it all is. Sex. It's, it's all, all sex. sex. It's that's all sex saying. though yeah. at the core. And that's where, and I've got a quote from, i no, I quoted from this book the last time. It's Love Worth Making, How to Have Ridiculously Great Sex by Stephen Snyder. I quoted last time from this, but there's a quote in here, and I just think this is, it's appropriate for what we're talking about. Uh, the touch of mother's arms, breasts, and body had to be an early ecstasy for which we search again. Were it not for custom, most of us would stay close to our mother's bodies until we found some warm replacement. Mm. As it is, we are laid crying to rest by ourselves, left to learn very slowly that being alone is not a death. I think at the core, what sex is, is this deep need for comfort with another human being, and we experience pleasure. And to put labels on it like it has to be in marriage, we have to wait for that for any sort of physical touch or to have that first kiss. And I'm not against the people that choose that. I'm really not trying to judge it. I'm just saying it doesn't leave space for exploration and understanding. All of the focus is on restraining something. So what's really fascinating about that is I'm in energy medicine school. So we're learning a lot about trauma and pain that we hold in our body and how that's connected to the things that we take in from our environment, whether that be like physical pain or emotional pain, spiritual pain. And what you're saying about trauma wants to be met with comfort. Well, what that comfort does is it actually gives closure to the loop of that trauma. And when we don't get closure to trauma, the trauma continues to spiral and cycle and then be held in your body and your psyche. And it can turn into like a lot of stuck, tough pain, autoimmune. There's all these things that you could like decipher. The other thing that's fascinating is like, if you're a child and like you've done something like you've touched the stove, you know what I mean? And you've burned your hand. Well, if your parent has the reaction to yell at you about touching the stove and shaming you for burning the hand, then that just creates more looping. It doesn't actually close the trauma. But if the parent comes to the child, puts ice on the hand and says, Oh, like, you know, I'm so sorry you've experienced this pain. I want to protect you and keep you safe. Like, can we not touch the stove again? Cause this is what happens when you touch the stove, but I love you. And I'm just so sorry, you know, comforting helps to close that trauma so that not every time the child approaches something hot, they're going to be really freaked out. You know what I mean? And so like, I think about when we think about sex and somebody comes, somebody adolescent or somebody grown up who's in an adolescent discovery phase of sex comes to someone and has said, Hey, I did this thing or I had this experience. And the experience actually was confusing or hard or pleasurable, whatever it is. And they're met with either like shame or no, 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 or shut that down. You're not comforting them. You're not helping them close the loop or asking for help to close the loop. And that just made me think of that when you said trauma needs comfort. That makes perfect sense. I've seen it said too, where it's like trauma 
isn't about the feelings that come up or what happens. It's about being alone in that. And that just struck me so much as like it, I love the, like it's closing the loop. It's the comfort. It's like not being alone. And that's been something that, I don't know, I've sat with some of my own traumatic experiences. It's like, oh, that's, it still is looping. And how do you sit with that and say, you're safe here and it diffuses, you know? What's powerful too, is that the closure, the comfort can happen many weeks, months, years afterward. And if it doesn't, I think what I, what I think this is true about the body when the body is remembering trauma, when you remember trauma, the body doesn't know that your body doesn't know the difference between it doesn't know if per- it's now um, yeah, or it was yeah, then yeah. perceived so, danger or actual danger. So it's like your body's being re-traumatized mm-hmm. yep. over and over and over again until that experience of comfort happens, which, whew, you yeah, know, you're, let's, you go to back to the fight or flight part of your brain. So you think about somebody who's had sexual trauma and then suddenly is in this quote unquote safe, they're in this, what they've been told it's okay here, marriage wise. And then they're actually re-traumatizing their body if they've never dealt with that trauma. That's what I was doing Mm -hmm. for years. That's what I realized Mm -hmm. when I finally woke up Mm -hmm. to it and realized, wait, I had sexual abuse in my past. I needed to deal with that in order to be able to be fully present with my partner and not keep re-traumatizing my body. Because my body could only hold so much of it. Even though I had years of pleasure, I had lots of pleasure in sex, but at some point my body finally said, I can't keep doing this. And it was in dealing with and closing that trauma loop and telling myself the truth that gave me what I would say kind of my first step towards freedom. And it was like, oh, I don't have to keep retelling and reliving that story but I needed to then parent my body in a way to help it to have same experience, but with a new narrative. And that new narrative had to actually build new dendrites in my brain so that my body and brain could be in sync with one another. And therefore sex could have the effect of being comforting, being holding. I think sometimes we settle for the pleasure without the emotional attachment. So we detach our emotions in order to experience the pleasure because the pleasure feels so good and it brings a form of comfort, but to be integrated body, mind, and soul, I think for those of us that have grown up in some form of Christian element, there has to be a restructuring and a rewiring of how our sexuality impacts our spirituality and how our spirituality is impacting our sexuality. Yeah. I think when you talk about sex being just about pleasure, you can hear that in one way that just about pleasure for me, but you can hear that in another way. You can work so hard at giving the other person pleasure that you're also equally missing out on the capacity for comfort and for intimacy. Mm-hmm. I think that's an important nuance. You can hide behind being the giver of pleasure in order to avoid having to come face to face with the wounds of trauma that are in you. I did it for years. hundred percent. I was good at giving pleasure and making Mm -hmm. sure. And therefore, and at some point my body went, hello, I can't keep. Yeah. I actually, what you shared reminded me of an experience that I had. Lucas and I were together in a certain position and it wasn't like a position we hadn't done before, but there must have been something that triggered my mind to an old memory that was not a safe memory with somebody else. And 
I immediately broke down in tears and my body froze. And like Lucas is very perceptive. So he obviously immediately, you know, stopped and like came and like held my face. And he's like, are you okay? Like what's going on? You know? And I was like, I don't know what's happening, but like all of a sudden these memories from this past experience, like a Rolodex just like flooded my mind and my body froze. Cortisol immediately flooded my brain, which is what happens when you go into fight or flight, your stress hormone floods your body. And what I've learned now in energy medicine school is that when cortisol, like it, that's like basically the, the guy in the tower going, you know, fire, fire, fire. Yeah, yeah. And so what happens is all the resources from all of like the other places in your body gather together and shoot to like feed the panic place. And that's why there's a lot of fatigue that usually follows after having that kind of reaction is because your whole body's been like sending a ton of energy to this one emergency section. And so like, I was really wiped out and really sad and it took me some time to like unpack that and figure it out. And he was like, well, we can like avoid that, you know, if you want. And I was like, no, 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 no. I think, you know, I'd like to try again at a different time, you know, cause now I know what that is. And unless you try again, mm-hmm. I mean, it's in yep. trying again, you went into that. I don't know how you went into that, but yeah. I want to say, I can say that those places of learning to get curious about those triggers. Yes gave me the compassion for myself and my response. I mean, yeah. didn't give me the compassion. I had to work on the compassion for myself that I had that response yeah. and go, oh, I'm not broken. I get to be curious. How can I go into that intentionally holding this wound and asking for healing? Yeah. I think that's one of the things that's so confusing in scripture. And as you were saying, you know, you read one level, Jesus healed. He suddenly had sight. He could see. I think there was so many different depths of that. And yeah, maybe instant healing, that'd be great. But think about integrated healing actually engages my mind, my body, and my wherever I'm at spiritually, it engages it for a purpose of giving me permission to actively participate as a full integrated human being. I'm bringing something, I think, something spiritual and something physical and something emotional that's coming together. And what if that's part of what we were created to do and bring to this world? Yeah. Because then I have can have compassion for myself and that I can then have compassion for somebody else when they experience that and go, oh, what did that feel like? Well, and like, I remember saying, I was crying and I said, I'm really embarrassed and I'm sorry. And like, all of a sudden my monkey brain was like, what if this starts happening every time? And like, I got really anxious and like, and then you have those thoughts of like, I'm ruined forever. And like, it's never going to feel good or be normal again. And that had never happened with him before. You know what I mean? Cause it just had triggered an old neural pathway an old memory. And he met me with so much love and compassion and safety. And I forget how many days went by before we tried again, but I had the thought before we tried again, like, Oh no, like, you know, what if this happens again? And then I was like, you know what, this is something I want to do right now. And I'm with somebody I love and trust. And it actually hasn't happened since I'm like fully okay. If it happens again, because what I'm understanding is like, some things just pop up when they pop up and like, I can meet them when they do. And I'm with somebody I trust to like, if I need to navigate something, that's a surprise, like he'll be there with me, which I'm grateful for. But like, yeah, like, whoo, I mean, it was like, it scared me. Like when it happened, it really freaked me out. And then I had other girlfriends who have had like, you know, different, but similar experiences. And I talked with them about it. And I think it comes back to what we talked about, about like sharing the pain. It made me feel more normal. It made me feel more normal to hear your story. You know what I mean? Like 
because it's not a commentary on whether my relationship is good or not, or I'm okay or not, or my relationship with God is okay or not. Like these things happen to people in all different places and different times of their life, you know? And it's not like some sort of like indicator on how healthy you are, like how much work you've done, you know? And so like, I'm so grateful, Becky, for the things you have shared with me on and off the microphone, you know, cause it's, it's really helped me be able to continue to nurture myself instead of like judge myself, which I think is so crucial. So I'm just like thinking about this, the sharing of the pain. It's so crucial. Hmm. Thanks for sharing that. I think as you were talking, it, it came to me like, it's so tempting when something like that happens to say, what's wrong with me? Yes. That's where we go first. You know, what's wrong with me? And that's such an unproductive question. <laughs> it's understandable, you know, but sounds like what you were able to do is translate that into what's happening here. Met with a lot of love from, Met cause the first thing I said was I'm embarrassed and yep. I'm sorry, yep. mm-hmm. which is the shame. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, well, and I, you didn't surprise, I want to say yeah. what you didn't do was push it down and put it and aside and just him. go, I'm going to go through this. I'm going right. to get through this. And I want to say that would be disassociating from yep. your body yep. yet again. And yep. I did that for years. I know. And I mean, I didn't, no, no, that's okay. You can say that. And like, and that's why I was like, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm but so, I, and I'm not sure there's a better expression of trust than that. The yeah. fact that you could stop yeah. and say, we have to talk through this. You yeah. know what I mean? Well, and I'm with somebody who is, you know, he's 12 years younger than I am, which you would never guess. And I never really honestly feel our age disparity. I but think he's, he's more so, your spirit age. He is my spirit age because, and I learned from him, like he has so much wisdom and like, he has always said to me, like, I don't want to have intimacy with you that's disembodied. He's like so committed to being embodied in that experience. And that is exactly what I needed. There's times where it requires more. So I'm like, oh, well, I guess. And it also means that like I have, I have to show up. But it's really, really good. What does that mean exactly? I don't know. What, I don't know, what, uh, I don't know means, what you mean by sometimes that. Sometimes the thief is like, I just want to fuck, and you want to, <laughs> you want to, you want to talk about it. You want to. Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. Not curious. What when you mean like like what do you mean? I like, don't know like, what you mean by that phrase of like I don't want to have intimacy with you disembodied. Like I want to be present, fully present to my emotions and my spirit and my body. I don't want to be having some sort of like conflict with you. I don't want to be like thinking about work. I don't want to be thinking about a conflict I have with somebody else. Like it's presence. I want to be fully present with you. And that means I really need to show up. And it just, it actually requires more like presence actually. I mean, we talked about at lunch, like we're exhausted at the end of these four days because it requires so much presence. Like I can't tune out when one of you are speaking or I can't actually contribute in a meaningful way to the conversation. That means my body has to be alert to you, my mind and my spirit. I mean, when you're doing that with sex, it's like you are really saying like every cell of me is going to be present. And so like, I'm going to be here, you know? And like, I can't, I mean, I remember advice I got and advice I have given about like, I just, in my past, will let my mind wander to go somewhere else, you know, so that I could just endure. I'm just, I'm so glad I don't have to do that anymore. So like part of it is that I'm with a partner who wants presence and desires presence and shows up offering me that like mirrors presence to me. But the other is that like, I've had years of a back catalog where I wasn't able to do that and it it cost me something. And I'm just, I don't want to create those debts anymore within myself, you know? Hmm. Can we go back and talk about for you guys? Cause I think that there was the little demon inside or the little the monster, the monster, the little monster you guys called. I just feel like 
that's under talked about mm. in the midst of this. And I think it is directly connected to some of the disembodiment that you're actually talking about where I think for men, they feel like they have to control and manage this thing, which yes, there's responsibility to your sexuality, but I don't think your sexual drive is a little monster. I don't either. I just want to make sure we say that at some point. I don't think men's sexual drive is a little monster. Yeah, I don't think we should call it little monster. I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. But I'm just saying that even though even that's been indoctrinated, we've got to find a different way of talking about that. And I want to find a different way of talking. I love when you guys talk about how, from your perspective, what you experienced, because it was very different than what we experienced as women. And I think it's just, it's under talked about. So we actually had a listener write in with, which I think we'll save it for the next episode. I think this would be a really great place for us to go. It's a more involved conversation than what I want to get into right now. Okay. But just mm-hmm. asking like, where's the line between sexual desire and lust? Because the only way that sexual desire was ever discussed in the church, the only word for that was lust. And there was only one sort of compartment for lust, you know, mm-hmm. and that was like, to be avoided. And so I would love for us to get into in our next episode. I don't want to say where's the line because I don't think it's a line, but just the relationship between sexual desire with our spirituality and lust, quote unquote, whatever, however we want to define that. So since we brought it up in this episode, I just wanted to make sure that when we talk about and heard you guys talk about how painful that was as a child to grow up and have that be a perception that you had of this part of how your body operated, that's a form of disembodiment. Hmm. And so if we can make space for the little monster to be here, we can rename that maybe in a different way to help other people and men to be able to recognize their sexual desire did not create the little monster. The little monster was created by adults that didn't understand how to hold their own sexuality and were terrified that their boys would experience pain. I think the same thing has happened to little girls. Oh, it has, but but we were talking so much about girls. I just want to make sure that we don't, that we really honor men in this because I think there's a lot of, and I think this is across the board. I hear this from gay men. I hear it from bisexual. I hear it in heterosexual. I hear it over and over again. I've got this. And so I'm glad we're going to talk about it, but I've got this innate desire. And I'm like, well, can we look at that? Can we actually befriend that and create some different language around it? It just feels healing to me Mm -hmm. to be able to, the vulnerability that you two men bring to us and offer us as an insight, it feels very sacred to me. And I I just don't want to let that be just in the first part of the episode when we don't circle back to it. Yeah, Yeah, let's go there next episode. Yeah. It might also be interesting. I don't know how anybody at this table feels about this, but I think about like what's described as like kinks, right? Like fetishes, kinks. Like I think that a lot of times fetishes and kinks are just like deeply connected to stories we carry that that we need a different ending to, that we want to play out. And, you know, I have a a dear friend who shared recently a unique kink that like they have not shared with anybody until recently and like found a therapist that they could really discuss it with and that would actually help them explore. And it's brought a tremendous amount of healing to their life. And 
one thing I feel curious about, and I don't know yet because I'm just walking with them, would be like, I wonder if this is something that you will enjoy from here on out. Or as the narrative gets satiated, as the loop closes, if you move on to something different, you know, like, cause I just think about like how my tastes and flavors have changed and desire even in food, you know what I mean? Like throughout my life, depending on what my body needs or what loops need to be closed. And so I think too, like there's people who walk around and I think the idea I thought, I thought of kinks and fetishes because it's connected to like shame and monsters and like, you know, Oh, that's gross. Or how could you like that? Or like whatever it is, Yeah, you know, I'm not super in tune with my body as we've talked about. I'm a three, I'm a heart type, but even hearing you say the words kinks and fetishes, I feel something in me that's like dangerous. That is something to stay away from. You know, I feel that inside of me. There's a natural resistance to that, that maybe not a natural, there's a trained resistance to to that and the things that those words represent. Yeah. So like a mild kink or fetish could be like toes. If we want to talk something about something mild, right? Like somebody could have a toe thing, you know, but like my guess is that toe thing is connected to something and it's serving a narrative, like a loop that needs to be closed when they find somebody that's willing to give them their toes, you know what I mean? Not like cut off, but like, you know, like let them do things with their toes. It probably like is healing something in them. So yeah, it could be interesting. I, I just, I'm curious what everybody else thinks about that. If we want to explore that too. Luke probably does Luke. not want to explore that. <laughs> As I do I'm an extended sure. eye contact with Luke. <laughs> He's not fiddling with the dial. So sometimes I wish this was a video podcast because there's just so much of that that gets missed. The looks, the side glances, the sweet moments too. Yeah. I want to share a story that a friend of mine shared about her son who is in high school and she's a therapist. So just aware of human developmental needs. And she had a son who's, he's now in college, but this was, she was sharing the story back when he was in high school and how every morning she would go up to his room and just touch him on the head as he was waking up, because she said, boys at that age need healthy touch. I want to say it was like seven or 12 times a day. But how often do high school boys get touched? Like just a non... Not, sensual touch. Yeah, yeah, but just like mm-hmm. a... Intentional sensual yes, touch. Yes, comfort touch. Mm-hmm. And so she wanted to make sure that he at least experienced one moment of that. And because how often are boys finding other ways to act out that need and then it becomes sexual because that's the only outlet that is available or different things like that. Right. Exactly. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And so I think about, there is a lot about how do we have safe spaces for touch? And I think even recently I was listening to a podcast that talked about seven hugs a day boosts your immune system. Like just how important touch really is. Anything coming out of this whole world that we're living in right now of we're so afraid to touch each other, but it is such a, we crave that, you know? And so I think there is an important element to that as we think about the little monster part of that, like where is there safe space for comfort for boys as they're growing and developing? I love that. One of my favorite things to do is when Lucas and I hug, like hanging in there and then I feel his whole body relax and then he sighs. And I love that. It's the absolute, I actually hug all my friends like that too. So like, I really like, I'm like, I'm just going to keep being here until your body relaxes. And it's knowing that that statistic about seven hugs is really fascinating. I wonder how many seven Tifa hugs you need, what that would do for you. (laughs) There's like a conversion rate. It's like, well, you know, mine traded like better than a vaccine. (laughs) 
Uh, your hugs are the euro of hugs. <laughs> no, I, I think it's because like the heart to heart, like you're basically lining like all of your chakras up basically. Right. And you're like just squeezing and that's just got to feel so good. Well, I'm talking about like safety mm-hmm. in that, you know, like, I mean, that's a good hug. You know, I think about, I'm trying to think of who I just hugged recently and it was like a very. It's probably somebody at this table. Yeah, okay. No, it wasn't. <laughs> but it was a little bit stiff of like, can I, can we lean into this together and can this be safe? You know, yeah. like it's just probably a little bit of that social atrophy. Well, back. in youth group, I was basically taught to do the side oh, hug geez, because right. you don't want to have a genital to genital mashup if you're hugging like but the boys in youth group. what a time to have a genital mashup if you really think about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just in this, that the clothes are on, the clothes you're, are you're on, in public. you're in public. It's like, it's going to be just a couple seconds. It's like, even being afraid of that is like, but that's how deep it goes. Right. That's what I know. I'm saying. I know. I'm just, it just is making me sad for our poor, hungry, starved bodies mm-hmm. that so desperately want to know we belong and we're with another human being in a safe, healthy way versus being afraid of other human beings just because they may have different genital regions. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's crazy. Yeah. I don't think we were created with these beautiful body parts to be afraid of them. Yeah. I think we're created to actually experience the wonder of what they are and the joy of getting to explore. That to me feels like intentional, enthusiastic, creative consent. This episode of Fun Parts was produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Braun. Our artwork was designed by the very talented Alan Lusink. All the music you heard in this episode was composed, produced, and licensed by the fine folks at blue.sessions.com. Check out our website at funpartspodcast.com and be sure to follow us on social media at funpartspodcast. Lastly, if you want access to bonus and behind-the-scenes content from this and other Milieu Media Group shows, join our neighborhood at the Patreon link in the show notes. And now, here's a scene from the next episode of Fun Parts. And see, that was the thing that I would have loved to have heard as a kid, because to me, the desire was, in fact, sinful. Any sort of physical response, even just like an intellectual response to seeing an attractive person, I felt shame for that. I felt guilty for that. I felt like I was breaking some sort of rules. I was always very uncomfortable with either of my parents. If like somebody popped up on TV and they acknowledged that person was attractive, that made me very uncomfortable because I was just like, my parents aren't going to cheat on each other. Like they're, like they're, that's clearly the next step. <laughs>